And so we're going to read from 1 Kings 4. It'll be 20 through 25 and then skip into 29 through the end. So hear the word of the Lord. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms, from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over everything west of the river, from Tifsah even to Gaza, over all the kings of west of the river, and he had peace on all sides around about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than, than Ethan the Ezrite, Haman and Calcol and Darda, the sons of Maal. And his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Good morning. So the disciples walked with Jesus for about three and a half years, and then there was that fateful night where Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The next day they watched him be crucified, and the disciples became terrified. They could assume that they would now be hunted down by the Romans, and that they too would be executed in some cruel and awful way. All they could think about was avoiding the Romans, in their weakness and their fear. But a couple of days later, everything changed. In fact, those very same men became so bold that they were willing to defy those Roman authorities and those religious authorities that had condemned Jesus and were out to get them. They were no longer afraid of earthly powers at all. What changed? They saw the risen Christ. You see, they realized Jesus was alive, and if he's alive, then he is Lord. They had heard him say, Matthew 28, verse 18, that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
the risen Christ, says, I have all authority over heaven and earth, and therefore go and make disciples. Be my men and women. Follow me. You see, they had met the risen Christ, and it totally transformed their whole picture of life. All of a sudden, the earthly authorities around them didn't really matter a whole lot, whether they were political authorities or religious authorities or any other kind. They didn't really concern them anymore. And their creed became, Jesus is Lord. This was in direct contrast to the Roman Empire, this powerful empire of the day which required every citizen to say, Caesar is Lord. But they no longer would say that. They would only say, Jesus is Lord, because Jesus is Lord over Caesar. He has all authority and all power. Brothers and sisters, that same Jesus is Lord today. His kingdom has come. He now reigns. Oh, yes, we realize that it's not fully uh, in place yet, and that someday it will be, but the testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus is Lord now, and he reigns now. But what does that look like? What does it mean that he reigns now? What does his kingdom look like? Because as we look around us, it's hard to see evidence, right? So what does it really mean that he is king now? We need to know so that we can live as citizens of his kingdom rather than Caesar's kingdom. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 4, we get a snapshot of Solomon's kingdom at its very height. He's now established it, and it's a beautiful picture in 1 Kings chapter 4 of a kingdom that you could argue was the greatest kingdom ever on earth. Maybe not in size, but certainly in in how just it was, in how wealthy it was, in how marvelous it was. But, as we all know, it didn't last. And in fact, in a few chapters, we'll see how things begin to fall apart as Solomon begins to lose his love for the Lord and it falls apart. But at this point, in chapter 4, it's a picture of a perfect kingdom on earth, something that every human has longed for. Haven't we? I mean, we've all wanted to have a ruler, a king, somebody who would do it right, that we could really trust in. And every new president, every new king of every land has been potentially, ah, maybe this one. Ah, not so good. And that's been the history of mankind. But this is a picture of a perfect kingdom that draws us to think about the true perfect kingdom, which is the kingdom of Jesus, that Jesus reigns. And so I want to look this morning at the kingdom of Solomon at this point as a foretaste, as a picture of Jesus' kingdom that is in place right now. His kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, pictures the kingdom of Jesus, which was established when he rose from the dead. So as we look today, it'll show us where Jesus' kingdom is meant to reign and shows us, therefore, how we are to live as citizens of Jesus' kingdom even now on this earth. So pray with me and we'll look at the chapter together. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you rose from the dead, and when you did, all authority was placed in your hands. And you were seated at the right hand of the Father, and therefore you reign on high even today. But we confess that a lot of times we, we forget that. We don't see it. And we need to know, Lord, what your kingdom is really like and what it means that you are Lord so that we can be good citizens of your kingdom. So teach us today by the power of your Spirit. Open the eyes of our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk this morning about three different areas that if Jesus is Lord, he is Lord over those areas. The first is that he's Lord over the people of God. Verses 1 through 20. Verse 1 of chapter 4 starts out this way. Now King Solomon was king over all Israel. When God had called Abraham out of Ur of Chaldees, he said, I am going to make you a great nation. You are going to be the people of God. And he created a whole new community of Abraham's descendants. And that became the very people of God where God himself was to reign over them. And Solomon is now God's anointed ruler over them. Well, if Jesus is Lord... If Jesus is Lord today, then it means that the most important thing about us as followers of Jesus Christ is that we are citizens of his kingdom. We are his family. We are his children. We've been adopted in. And so that makes us one in him. Nothing should be allowed to divide us, therefore. We're all one family. Nothing should be allowed to divide us, not race, not minor theological differences, not political persuasions or viewpoints, not financial status, not gender, not age. Nothing should divide us because we are all citizens of the kingdom of God. We follow Jesus as Lord, and that's why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It doesn't say create unity. Unity is already here. We are one because we've been adopted into the same family. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus is now our Lord for every one of us, and therefore we are called to preserve that unity. What does this look like to have Jesus be Lord over the people of God? Well, it also means not only unity, that we're all one, but we also have incredible diversity and We don't have time to read all the names that are given in verses 2 and following, but let me read just a couple verses. These were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elihorath and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was the recorder. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army. And on and on, all the way down, name after name of individuals who were part of the people of God, who were part and had a purpose in Solomon's kingdom. It's a picture for us of the kingdom of Jesus, that we all are individuals. We're all diverse. We're all different. We come from different backgrounds. We have different stories. And yet, we are all one. We all have a place in God's kingdom. Each one was chosen by God to be part of his family, despite our differences. And I like the way in this passage you see a whole diversity 
of occupations. Let me just highlight some of them. There were officials and priests and secretaries and recorders and friends and managers and servants and laborers, each doing their part to make Solomon's kingdom successful. I really like that because it's a picture of the body of Christ, right? New Testament uses that illustration that as the people of God, we are like a physical body. And each part is necessary. Each part is important. If Jesus is Lord, then it's how our body parts fit together, how we learn to love one another and relate to the other body parts and work in harmony with one another under Jesus our Lord that allows the body to grow and be healthy and strong and be that all that God created us to be. You see, if Jesus is Lord, if he really is Lord today, and I believe he is, then our calling is to follow and obey him, find our place in the body of Christ, whatever that is, and do our best to love one another that way. 1 Corinthians 12, of course, talks about that. It's about the body of Christ and how we are to function together. And in verse 14, it says this, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, Because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? Now think about that. I think Paul's being pretty funny here. I mean, you see a body and it's one big eyeball, you know, and you'd say, wow, nice seeing you today. Uh... (laughs) I'd shake your hand, but I don't have any <laughs> hands. <laughs> How would the body function? How would Jesus do his work on earth if there weren't many, many different parts? And so he says, you know, none of us can say, the foot can't say, ah, because I'm not a different part, I'm not important. In fact, it's very clear, every part is vitally important. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 12, Starting at verse 20, I believe. Now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And he goes on to say a little further down. So there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Paul is saying, look, nobody can say, I don't need you. And nobody can say, I'm not necessary. Everyone in this room is gifted. And the health of the church here at Cole and in our community depends on each one of us being part of seeing Jesus as Lord, hearing what he has for us, and living that out. He wants to be Lord over every area of our lives, including your work, no matter what it is. And I want to look at just verse 4, highlight something in there. Verse 4, it says, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the army, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Now, you may not remember who Abiathar was, but he's come up a couple times already in 1 Kings. 
He was one of David's priests. He was the closest to David. He supported David and carried the ark with David. He was a great man of God. But earlier in Kings, he rebelled against David, supporting David's son Adonijah, who was trying to usurp the kingdom. And so in chapter 2, Solomon confronts him and says this, Verse 26, then to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your own field, for you deserve to die. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted in everything with which my father was afflicted. So Solomon says, You're done being priest. You're gone. You're banished. And yet in chapter 4, He's been restored as priest. See, I think that's very significant because it says that one of the foundations of Solomon's kingdom was restoration and forgiveness. And it's a reminder that our foundation for the kingdom of God is not by us doing it right, but it's forgiveness. The forgiveness of Jesus Christ as he died on the cross allows us to be adopted into the family of God. And so forgiveness is the foundation for our relationship with him, but it's also the foundation for our relationship with one another. None of us deserve to live. Abiathar deserved to die. We've all rebelled. We've all sinned against God and against one, of no, one another. <laughs> but Solomon forgave a man and restored him, and Jesus restores him, and... So what makes our relationship strong in the body of Christ is extending the forgiveness that Christ has given us to one another. And let me just challenge you. Is there someone you haven't forgiven? Is there resentment in your heart that you've held on to and you've avoided the person or avoided dealing with it or been angry with them? Let me say that the health of the body of Christ under Jesus' lordship is dependent on us forgiving one another, and I urge you to take that before the Lord. Don't miss out on God's blessing to hang on to your resentment. I know a family where there's two sisters, and both were deeply traumatized in the family they grew up in. One has grown up to be bitter and angry. The other has grown up to be gentle and kind and loving and joyful. What's the difference? The only difference I can see in their lives is that one is forgiven and one hasn't. Let's not miss out on the blessing that God wants to give us. So under Jesus' lordship, what does life look like? Verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. A picture of fellowship together eating and drinking together and rejoicing, thankful. Joy, joy is founded on a thankful heart that says, I don't deserve your goodness, Lord, but you are Lord. You're involved in my life. I can trust you. I'm seeking to obey you. And out of that comes fellowship with one another and joy in our relationship with Christ. Jesus is Lord over the people of God. But secondly, I see in this passage that he's Lord over all the nations. Lord over all the nations. Verse 21, now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms 
from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. All the known area of that time was under Solomon's rule. It was a big kingdom. They brought tribute, and it says that they therefore experienced shalom, peace, as God's people. And they had prosperity and security. Judah, verse 25, Judah and Israel lived in safety and security. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. That word for safety or security is actually from the Hebrew word batach, which is to trust. You and I often fall into this attitude that my security depends on my circumstances or my bank account or how big an army we have, or this or that. But notice the word for security in Hebrew comes from the word for trust. In other words, it's trusting in him. If you really believe Jesus is Lord and he's in control of the nations, then you can trust in him and your security comes out of trusting that he is over our circumstances no matter how circumstances look. (laughs) I love that. Because that's so freeing. I don't have to pay attention that much to my circumstances. It's simply keeping my eyes on the one who is Lord over all the nations. Jesus is Lord. This is so important. It's not the size of an army or how many weapons we have that gives us security. It's simply knowing Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus establishes the borders of nations. He he establishes their reign. And Psalm 2 shows us how When they oppose him, it's meaningless. He laughs at them when they try to oppose him. Let me read part of Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. Sounds pretty powerful, huh? Verse 4, he who sits, notice God sits in the heavens. He doesn't even get up for all these nations. (laughs) He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And down in verse 12, it says, the nations are commanded, kiss the sun, literally, that's the what the passage says, kiss the son that that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. You see, if Jesus is Lord, he's over the nations and it doesn't matter if they try to oppose him or what they do. He laughs. He has all authority. All authority, Jesus said, has been given to me in heaven and earth. This means we can truly trust. We can be secure No matter what's going on in the world around us, no matter who's in charge, no matter who's president or in Congress or ruling another nation or who might threaten us, we don't have to be afraid if Jesus is really Lord over the nations. But what this means, and I want you to hear this very carefully, if he's Lord and he establishes kings, and I'll give you some verses that talk about that, how he, he sets kings up and he removes them according to his own strength. 
his own plan, his own purposes. It means that he was ultimately in charge of putting President Clinton in power. He was ultimately in charge of putting President Bush in power. He was ultimately in charge of putting President Obama in power. He was ultimately in charge of putting President Trump in power, and on and on and on. If he is really Lord, he's Lord over all the nations. And if he's working out a plan, and it doesn't mean he agrees with everything they do, but it means even in their brokenness and foolishness, he is working out his greater plan. He establishes kings and removes them. He's in control of governments for his greater purposes. Let me give you just a couple verses. Proverbs 8, verse 15 and 16, for example, says this. By me, this is wisdom speaking, but it's God himself, it's Jesus. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles all who judge rightly. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Over in Daniel chapter 2, and this is the last verse we'll look at in this part. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It's a reminder to us that we don't really have to worry about earthly powers. We shouldn't get so churned up about who might or might not get elected. God is working behind the scenes, working out a plan. Yes, Satan still has some influence in this fallen world, and yes, Jesus needs to come back and finally bring full justice and set everything right, but we can rest securely, no matter what's going on around us, knowing that Jesus is Lord and he is in charge of what's going on in this world. He's over the nations. And in verse 25, where it says, Judah and Israel lived in safety and security, every man under every person under their vine and fig tree. It's a marvelous picture of security and prosperity when you submit to Jesus as Lord, no matter what's going on around you. You see, a vine was a picture of they made wine from it. Celebration. And a fig tree was used primarily, the figs are used for dessert. Again, a picture of prosperity and celebration. That's what God wants for us as we trust in him and his authority over all nations. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord over the people of God. If Jesus is Lord, he's over all the nations. And if Jesus is Lord, thirdly, he's Lord over creation. At the end of this passage, it talks about Solomon and how wise he was and how he studied nature and science. 
and discovered some marvelous things about science. He was the wisest of mankind by far. He understood about life. He studied life and Proverbs and songs and plant life and animal life. He had astounding wisdom. People came from all over the world, it says, to learn from his wisdom. But Jesus is so far beyond Solomon because not only does he know everything about all of creation, but he created it. (laughs) He made it himself. And so it's all in his hands. So it means he's Lord of knowledge. Man has an ability, an amazing ability to understand things, right? We can apply our minds and discover things and, and build things and That's a gift from God. And we're actually acting like Jesus when we apply our minds and grow in true knowledge. But if Jesus is Lord over knowledge, then the only way to really understand knowledge fully and to apply it correctly, it has to be done under his lordship. He is Lord over knowledge. It all comes from him. He designed it. The only way to not distort it, the only way to get it right is to submit to Jesus as Lord. He is over all knowledge. The wisest in the world are no match for the brilliance of Jesus. So he's Lord over all knowledge in the world. That's important for us to remember. But secondly, he's also Lord over the arts. Again, this verse that says that he wrote all these, um, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Solomon was pretty gifted. He was an artist. He wrote songs. But it's a reminder to us that Jesus actually is the most creative being who ever lived, right? He created so much. And think of the beauty of a flower and how many multitudes of flowers there are. Think of the creativity and beauty that Jesus has created poetry, songs, painting, design, artistic endeavors of all kinds are areas of Jesus' lordship. No one, whether they acknowledge him or not, can truly be creative and create beautiful art without his help, without his hand. (laughs) And all art is best when it's submitted to his lordship. If you studied art history at all, a lot of the best art that's ever been created has been religious art to God's glory. But I believe all art, whether it's religious or not, secular art as well, is beautiful when it's good art. There's bad art. But when there's good art, it's beautiful and it moves our souls because it's actually out of his creativity, his artistic glory. And third, if Jesus is Lord of overall creation, he's Lord over knowledge, he's Lord over the arts, and he's Lord over nature and science. It says Solomon studied nature. He studied from plants to animals. But Jesus created it all. He created it all. To date, researchers have been able to document around 1.2 million species in existence of plants and animals. 1.2 million species. That's how many they've documented. But they estimate there are actually 8.7 million. I'm not sure how they get that amount, but 
what that would mean is that they've only actually found 14% of all species. And Jesus is Lord over nature and science. He created it all. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without his understanding, without his knowledge, without him being somehow involved in that. I want to just show you some pictures because it says Solomon studied the cedar. This is the cedar of Lebanon, created by Jesus. Jesus is over nature. It says that he studied down to the hyssop. This is a hyssop plant. Again, we could look at many, many other plants, right? But these are just a couple of the <laughs> plants it says. He, he studied animals. Well, Jesus created animals. <laughs> All the animals. And we could look again at so many. This is a red panda. This is a zebra, right? He created all of these. He created the birds. There's so many different birds. I love looking in my backyard at my bird feeder and watching the birds come and then figuring out what kind of bird that is and looking at all the different designs. And and that's just a tiny bit of what he's created. It says he created or he studied creeping things. You like this picture? (laughs) Thanks, Mike. I'm glad you do. Very interesting to me that they have found over 300,000 species of beetles. But they estimate there's closer to 800,000 species of beetles in the world. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not a great fan of beetles. And uh, why in the world did Jesus create 800,000 species of beetles? I have no idea. But it just shows his amazing creativity. And I like the fact these are on a plate. You know, you're thinking about lunch today. And uh, just, just saying. And then Solomon studied the fish. But Jesus created the fish. Yeah, here's a clownfish. Little Nemo, right? <laughs> you see, Jesus carefully crafted every animal, every plant, He governs nature, and all true science is simply observing and looking at what God has already created and using what he's already made to to maybe design other things, but it's all from him. So sometimes as Christians, we get afraid and we think, wow, well, science disproves Christianity or science is at odds with Christianity. No way. True science will always support the creator. And Jesus is Lord over science. He's Lord over nature. And so we don't ever have to be afraid that he's not. Jesus is Lord, and that means he's Lord over all areas of life today. Yes, we look forward to his kingdom, but it's already here. And that means all areas of life, including politics and arts and nature and science, are ultimately meant to be under his authority now. And we, as the people of God, have the opportunity to actually submit to him as Lord and submit everything we do from art to science to knowledge, searching and reading and all of that, submit it to him as Lord. And it means that if Jesus is Lord, that every human being whether they acknowledge to him or not, can only try and find full fulfillment and peace and security when we're living under his 
lordship, submitting to his lordship over our lives and trusting him. Batach. Trusting him as lord over all nations, all political parties, (laughs) and all creation. As we close, I want to highlight just one phrase in verse 29. It says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment, and my translation says, breadth of mind. Literally, it's width of heart. Width of heart. Solomon was a great king because God gave him width of heart, where he forgave Abiathar, where he was able to welcome many. Jesus, the true king, has width of heart. He is Lord over everything. But he is not only Lord, he is Savior. The Savior who came and had width of heart, so he stretched himself out on a cross and gave up his life for us so that we could be welcomed into the family of God. So our creed as Christians today should be, Jesus is Lord. I'm not afraid of anything going on in the world because Jesus is Lord, and I know I'm secure because Jesus is also Savior. So may we be people who share our creed with the world that needs to know him. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for revealing yourself to us as Lord and for being our Savior as well. May we be people who submit to you as Lord and follow you as Lord and declare you as Lord. And may we be people who celebrate under our vine and under our fig tree and enjoy fellowship with one another because you gave up your life for us and made us part of the family of God. And for that, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.